Yeah, so it's interesting because people mistake us all the time and think we're alike. And it's interesting because when you hang out with people, sometimes you pick up uh, kind of their mannerisms, the way they talk or their habits. Um, and that's happened with me and Joel and other people sometimes. But I actually had this happen a couple years ago where I was getting my uh, hair cut and I had an interesting conversation that happened. <clears throat> I, um, when this was happening, this uh, lady was cutting my hair and she goes, so I know you said you went to school around here, but I just have to ask you, where are you actually from? And I said, well, before I tell you, do you want to guess? And so she said, Romania? <laughs> and I said, no. And she said, uh, South Africa? <laughs> to which I also said, no. And she kept guessing for a little while, and she was like, well, uh, where are you actually from then? And I said, well, before I reveal where I'm actually from, what tipped you off about this? What made you think I was from another country? And she turns off her clippers and just goes, I can't place it, but your accent is just so thick. Now, <clears throat> I don't personally think I have an accent, but I revealed to her after this that there's this distant land um, about an hour south called Kalamazoo, and um, <laughs> that I am from there. And, um, but I worked in uh, college ministry for a number of years uh, with a group called InterVarsity, and when I worked in this ministry, whenever I worked with an international student, I realized I had a tendency to pick up their accent. And this happened, all these conversations happened right after I had a conversation with somebody. So I've heard several places. I said Romania and South Africa, for Germany, Europe, Canada, all these different places. And my dad actually has a very similar thing because I realized whenever we go on a road trip, if we're driving south, I can tell how far south we are by how thick his southern draw is. So I'm like, oh, Kentucky, you know, um, and didn't realize we were that far. And so for him, he picks it up. I also, it's not just with like the way people talk, but I've also had it with like foods people like. So some friends of mine, they like um, hot honey and like to put it on pizza and different stuff. And they like these Nashville hot chicken sandwiches. And I have just started to like, like these just be, being around them. Um, this happens with Wordle. Um, like, I don't know if anybody plays Wordle, but like some friends of mine started playing it in the young adults group, and I started playing it and got like the whole, the whole group into it. Sometimes, though, this happens where people just pretend to do this, right? Because they like, they do the thing because they like the person who likes the thing, right? Or this happens where you just pretend you like something, and then years down the line, people say, well, I thought you liked country music, or I thought you liked green beans, and you realize, no, it, they just pretended to like those for a time. But every now and then, something else happens where what that person liked becomes what you like. I have uh, some friends that are all Michigan football fans, okay? I don't know if there's any of those in here, but, um, and uh, for me, I didn't grow up actually having like a loyalty to any of these teams, and I started hanging around them, and when I started hanging around them, they were watching these games, and eventually I found myself watching the games for myself, too, and going to the games, and I, at one point, I think it was after I bought like a Michigan spatula or something, I <laughs> said to my roommate, I was like, I, I think I'm becoming a Michigan fan, and he goes, it's about time, and so, Anyways, I realized on this, as I was thinking about these different things, 
if it can happen with sports, if it can happen with food and other interests and games, is it possible that that can also happen with faith? And that sometimes when we're around people, we pick up, like their faith rubs off on us. And while it's natural and necessary for faith to start there, I want us to wrestle with the idea and consider that it cannot stay there. That if faith is going to grow and mature and become all that it was created to be, that you and I must own our faith. That it can't stay in the uh, form of just borrowed faith. Borrowed faith is fine for a season, but it has to become our own. And in this series that we're talking about with spiritual disciplines, I think all the spiritual disciplines are an opportunity for us to take ownership over our faith. But the passage we're going to look at today, it's in 2 Chronicles 24, and we're going to look at a young king. And I think that this passage is about a king who deals with ownership, but also, not only does he deal with ownership, but I think there's some indicators in there of what it means to own your faith, and there's a spiritual discipline present in this passage that I think will help us be um, better at owning our faith. So we're going to go into Second Chronicles, and as we're, you're turning there, uh, I don't know if you've read Chronicles or Kings in the Bible before, um, but one of the things that's interesting about Chronicles and Kings is whenever the author introduces a new king, he always starts with one of two phrases. Either he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, right or evil. So I want us to take a quick vote on this. Now, I don't know if you've read the story of Joash, so it's going to be kind of a shot in the dark here, okay? How many of you think that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? Go ahead and show your hands if you think he did what was right, okay? All right, flip side, who thinks he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord? All right. And gets to that point where it says, and it says, and he did what was, actually, sometimes when you're at the start of a passage, you want to know a little bit about the person, get some context before you jump in. So I want to give a little bit of backstory first. When Joash was born, his dad was the king, and his dad actually gets killed in battle. And back then, if a king gets killed in battle, the crown is going to go to the next heir in line. Now, Joash had older brothers and sisters, so he was probably going to go to one of them. But Joash's grandmother, Queen Ataliah, saw her chance to take over. So she moved quickly and slaughters the whole family. Now, she takes the crown for herself and takes the throne, and it looks like darkness has won. But little did she know that one escaped? Joash. Joash's aunt, who was his nurse, scooped him up and brought him to the one place that the queen would never look, the last place she would ever look, the house of the Lord, and brought him to the high priest Jehoiada. And Jehoiada was actually also his uncle. And Jehoiada, for six years, kept this baby, this kid, hidden in the house of the Lord in secret and raised him in the ways of the Lord. And for six long years, they waited. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada, this good priest, decided it was time to act. And so he called all the people of the land in and he formed a coup. 
And he brought this little boy in front of them all, all the people of the land, and he took the crown and crowned this young seven-year-old boy king of the whole land. All the people rejoiced. Everybody cheered because the true king had returned. The queen, Ataliah, she heard this in the distance, so she rushed over, pushed open the doors, and she saw there the young boy with a crown on his head. And she cried, treason, treason. And the priest said, quick, take her out. And they seized her and brought her outside of the temple and executed her for the wickedness that she had done against her family and against the kingdom. And thus, this young seven-year-old boy became king of the whole land with this mentor, Jehoiada, by his side. And at this point, it came to the point where it was going to introduce him with one of those two lines, right? Whether he did what was right or evil in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, real quick, before we get to that, anybody change their vote? Who thinks he did what was right still? Yeah? How about who thinks he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord? A few people still? And so it gets to that point, and I, at this point, I am like on the edge of my seat. I'm practically like praying for this kid. Like, come on, you can do this. And it says... And he did what was, come back next week and you'll find out. No, I'm just joking. Okay, um, it says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And I was like, yes, that's my boy. And I was so excited because this guy did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then it, I read it again and it says this, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And I thought, well, that's a curious little phrase to tag on. Why would they add that little part? Because usually it's just either he did what was right or did what was evil. But this one adds a phrase. And as I read the story, he does do what's right. And he does it for a season. And if you read the story, you see that there's actually, um, he repairs the temple. And there's actually archaeological evidence of this. There is a uh, tablet called the Joash Tablet. And it gives an account of how Joash and this mentor, this priest, they actually repaired the temple of the Lord. And did all these repairs on it and did a lot of good stuff. But as the years went on, as Jehoiada, this priest, got older, he died. And when Jehoiada died, when the priest died, so did Joash's faith. Because it never was his faith. He just borrowed it. Question. If there's ever been like a person that you can think of that's been in your life that's made an impact on your faith for good or significant uh, impact and left a mark on your life, what happens if that person is no longer there? Or if the relationship changes and suddenly they are not as present in your life? Remember at the start of this series, Dan Mike talked about how it's great if like your spouse prays, it's great if your parents read the scriptures, but what about yourself? Well, the story continues. And uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 17 through 19, we'll read. And actually, at this point, I'd like, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's word. 
verse 17, it says this, after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and worshiped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger came on Judah and Jerusalem. And although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. This is God's word. You may be seated. And so we see in this passage, there's three movements. First, the mentor leaves, new influences enter, and then God cares about him, so he sends prophets and messengers to bring him back, but he would not listen. And so this first part where the mentor is taken out, and then these other influences enter, this is like the crux of the whole story. This is the hinge point where he's at a decision point, like an intersection, a crossroads, no pun intended, but he's there at this crossroads, and he's trying to figure out what to do. And in this, he's at a place where there's a void in his life because the mentor's out, these new influences enter, and he's trying to figure out what to do. I relate to this because I think this was very similar to what happened with myself in my own life. I grew up in a, a Christian home. I went to a Christian school and was raised to just love the Lord and read scripture. And then something happened. This Christian school that I went to closed and I went to another school. And if you've ever switched schools, you probably know this, but when I moved to this other school, I was trying to make friends and get in like this new friend group. And I remember as I was trying to do this and as I was trying to get to know people and meet new people, there was a group of friends and one in particular is trying to become friends with, and I remember hearing them laughing in one of the classes. And I asked them, what's so funny? And um, they turned to me and explained to me, and I realized they were laughing essentially at Christianity and mocking it. And because I wanted to be friends and I wanted to be in this group, I found myself laughing too. And then I had another student who, like everybody looked up to in our class, stood up for his faith. And when I saw him stand up for his faith, it hit me between the eyes because it made me realize that the faith that I thought I had was more loaned to me than owned by me. It was loaned to me for a season, but as soon as it became socially unacceptable, as soon as there was risk or something negative associated with it, I backed off. It was something that I held on to while uh, like my parents or mentors or people were around, but as soon as I was in a spot where it wasn't as acceptable, I backed off from it. And I, you know, I think that everybody in here, in a church this size, a, a room this size, everybody has probably dealt with a different moment in their life where it's something similar to this, where they're at an intersection moment, a crisis moment, where they had to decide if the faith they grew up with was their own or if it was just borrowed. And I, I, if you've never had one, maybe you're like in the middle of one right now and there's things that you grew up and you learned or you were taught, but you're trying to figure out what is my faith and you're trying to reconcile what do you own and what do you not. 
when I worked in college ministry for a long time, I would read um, stats about this all the time. And there's actually a couple studies I'll show you really quick that I read. So um, one said that the 60 to 80% of church-going high school students will still actively be involved in the Christian faith by age 30. So essentially it's saying people going into college from high school that are believers often there's some that walk away and they're not involved in the church afterwards. Now, I did some more research on this, and a lot of people actually come back to um, their faith when they're in their 30s because they have families and want their families to come back to church. But think of all the years that could be different there. As of 2016, it said about a third of teens say they do not believe in God. When I worked in college ministry, what happened was I actually just came up here to do seminary at GRTS, and when I was there doing seminary, I just needed a side job to pay to go to seminary. And so I had no interest in actually, or intention in doing ministry at the college, but I needed a side job to pay, and so I started working as a tutor at Davenport, and I kept running into student after student who would tell me the exact same narrative. They'd say they grew up in their faith, their dad was a youth pastor, they went to a Christian school, they'd been on like a missions trip, and I'd say, that's great. What about now? And often the answer was, I don't really do that anymore. And it wasn't like this like, oh, suddenly like there was um, this atheist professor that like, you know, turned them away from their faith. And a lot of times it wasn't always for like bad reasons that someone walked away. Sometimes they just had seen inconsistencies or hypocrisy or there was church hurt. And for them, a lot of times, I think the other part was it was not as convenient. One other thing that I had looked at as I was looking at some of the research on this was this other study that came out last year that said 31% of young adults, specifically young adults, report feeling lonely each day. And I think that one of the things that I found really interesting about this is when they were talking about this, they said that a lot of young adults today, they actually interpret loneliness as purposelessness. And so when they don't have the community around them, or when we don't have this community with us, we start to feel like we don't have a purpose, and so we'll look to whatever community comes our way. And often, I think, myself included, I found myself in a place where it was easier to trade um, my convictions for community. I, I would rather, it was almost like I'd rather trade them than keep my convictions and be alone. And I think this is what Joash was dealing with at some point, because if you look at this, he lost his identity in the crowd. If you read those verses again, 17 through 19, you can see that the subject changes. It goes from Joash being the main uh, actor in this to they, there, there, them, they. He lost his identity in the crowd and became a part of the group as opposed to thinking for himself what he remembered. Well, at this point, a new character enters the stage a prophet or a priest by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah, he decides, like it says the spirit of the Lord came on him and clothed him, and it says that he came before the king. And it says this, uh, if you read, uh, let's see, verse 20, um, it says he stood before the people and said, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And so this guy, Zachariah, has like the boldness to come before the king and before the people and tell them that they need to turn back to the Lord. But did he turn back? 
It says that unfortunately, Joash formed a conspiracy and he, by order of the king, he murdered uh, this prophet, this priest, Zechariah. And of all places, he was killed in the temple, in the house of the Lord, the very place that he had been protected for so many years. Now, if you read Matthew, you'll see that Jesus even references this story because he says in Matthew 23, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, all the righteous blood of the prophets is on you from the righteous blood of Abel all the way to the blood of Zechariah who was killed in the temple. And here's where the plot thickens. Guess who Zechariah was the son of? Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada the priest. He was the son of the one who protected him for so many years. And if Zechariah was the son of Jehoiada, this priest, and Jehoiada was like a father figure, like a mentor to Joash, and that would make them like brothers. In fact, if you read the story, you actually find that they were cousins. And he murdered him. And he put him to death. Later on, it says in verse uh, 25 that uh, he was wounded in battle. Joash was wounded in battle. And his officials, because they were angry about what happened, conspired against him. And they put Joash to death um, because of what happened. And that is the tragic and epic account of King Joash. And if you're like me, you're like, how could a life that was filled with so much momentum and potential go to a life that ended with such tragedy? I mean, he could have been a good king. He was supposed to be the one who would uh, restore this and do all this good stuff, but instead he became the very thing that the priest tried to protect him from. He became the one who killed somebody in the temple. And so I often, when I was reading this, I was like, why did this happen? Was it just the other people's fault? Like the other people that influenced him wrongly? I actually, uh, a couple years back, I worked at this camp. And uh, at the camp, we had to do this kind of thing where um, you'd have a different camp counselor at each table, and they'd give you an order at the mealtime, okay? And so when it was dinner, you'd have to go up with your table, and the, uh, the kids would follow the camp counselor. You'd get your food, go back to your table. And so you'd, they wanted you to go in the correct order to make it so there wasn't chaos. And so I remember I was sitting there, and I was, um, I get talking with my campers, and I get distracted, and so I'm not paying attention to where we're at in the order, and all of a sudden, lunch lady comes over, taps on the table and says, it's your turn. And like, I look around, I don't actually know where we're at in the order, I'm like, Okay, so I get up, and I walk up, and I get to the uh, line to get our food, and just then, microphone comes on, the camp director says, <clears throat> somebody went out of order. And I was like, oh, that's me, you know, um, and so I took all of them, we walked back, waited our turn at the table, got up and got our food, and then I was like, I'm never gonna do that again. Dessert came around, <laughs> and I get talking, I get distracted, and as I'm like thinking about what I'm doing, or trying to think what I'm doing, all of a sudden the lunch lady comes over again. It's your turn, I think. I'm like, oh 
gosh, I don't know what to, you know, whose turn it is. And so I get up, lead them all around. We get to the uh, line to get our food, and just then, I hear the microphone come on, and the camp director says, somebody went out of order. And this time, everybody just knows who it is, and they turn, and I just see like all this laughter coming right at me. And so I do one of these, step to the side, point at the lunch lady, and say, it was her fault! She did it! Now, nothing against uh, lunch ladies. I actually was one, or not, not a lunch lady, but I, um, <laughs> I worked as a, anyways. Um, but I, the point is this. I think so many times it's easy for us to want to point at the other influences and say it was their fault. But I think there's something more at play here. In verse 21, it says, he was put to death by order of who? He was put to death by order of the king. And even though we'd love to point and say it's their fault, they're the ones, the truth of this passage is Joash was the one who made the call. And if we're going to own our faith, we have to come to a place where we realize we're responsible for the choices we make. And so how do we own our faith? What does that look like to own our faith? How do we like do this thing that we're talking about? How do we take our faith and make it not just someone else's, but make it our own? I think there's three indicators that I see in the passage that I think are really key for helping us move from a place of borrowed faith to our own faith. The first one is this. You see Jehoiada, this priest, this mentor, he invested in younger people. He invested in this next generation. This whole week, I've been so impressed because literally this whole week, they have transformed this room into a place to invest in young people. We had VBS this whole week and just saw so many kids come in, so many volunteers that did just such an outstanding job and brought uh, the truth of God's word to these young kids. And not just that, but the youth and the middle schoolers have been involved in an immersion program they did. And I've just loved seeing how this church has taken serious investing in young people. Even myself, as a... Um, um, a resident. They've given like opportunities over this uh, whole year of being here and st- just to learn about faith and learn under pastors what it looks like to do uh, ministry. The second indicator I would say is this risk. Um, Zechariah, he risked his life to bring this message to Joash because he must have known that back in those days, if you confronted a king, you're putting your life on the line. And like with Esther, she came before the king, and there was a lot of risk when she did that. Zechariah must have known that. I'll never forget a few, uh, several years ago when I was in college, we sat at an intervarsity camp, and there was a speaker. And at the camp, the, the speaker said, turn to the person next to you and share what the biggest risk you've ever taken is. And so I turned to the person next to me and said, well, I jumped out of an airplane once. And really the biggest risk was I didn't tell my parents until I landed, but I, there was a big risk. And I said, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And he said, well, I became a Christian. And I was like, oh, okay. And I just kept, went back to listening to the speaker. And all of a sudden, midway through the, the message, I turned back to him because it kind of just started to register. And I was like, hold on, run that by me one more time. Why was being a Christian the biggest risk you ever took? And he said, when the country I grew up is very hostile to Christians and Christianity, 
And when I became a Christian, my friends and my family disowned me and have not talked to me since then. When we own our faith, it, it takes relational risks. And generally, you can only tell if your faith is actually your own if it's tested. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, like, at, when the storm comes, it'll reveal what foundation you're built on, if it's on the sand or on the rock. What foundation are you built on? Last indicator, and I think this is actually the one that I want to bring uh, to you and suggest and offer as a spiritual discipline uh, to add to the things that we're doing this summer. Um, the spiritual discipline you'll see here, it's actually in verse 22. Um, it says this, King Joash did not remember the kindness Zachariah's father Jehoiada had shown him. Now, it says this word remember. He did not remember. There's a word play here that we don't see in English because um, it's only done in the Hebrew language. And so when I was in seminary, they wanted us to learn Hebrew, and I had the hardest time memorizing new words in another language. And so when I ever, when I would get to like a Hebrew word, I'd try and come up with like a shortcut to do it, okay? And so the Hebrew word for remember is zakar, zakar, okay? And so I just imagined in my head this like mnemonic device, and what I did is I imagined this mafia boss talking to like his partner in crime about their getaway car and saying, remember the car, okay? And so for me, <laughs> do with that what you will, but for me what happened was that helped me, ironically, remember, remember, and I, I think that there's a tragic irony in here because if you look at that verse 22 again, it says this, King Joash did not zakar the kindness that was shown him, but murdered Zechariah. And you can hear that word zakar in his name because Zechariah means God has remembered. And so, the person here, the author, is picking up on this and he's saying the reason why Joash drifted in his faith, the reason why he walked away, the reason why this happened is simply because even all this good happened in his life earlier, he forgot it. He did not live bringing the past into the present. He didn't remember what this priest had done. And now at this point in his life, he's living as though it didn't even happen. Have you ever forgotten something? Have you ever got to a place where, like, you're supposed to remember something, but you forgot it? A couple months ago, we were, um, <laughs> me and uh, my girlfriend Montana, we came and sat right about here in the audience, and we were uh, just, we came in and there was worship, and then uh, Dan Mike came and preached, and then uh, we were doing the last worship song. And as we were doing the last worship song, I'm standing up, and I'm in my head already thinking through all right, I have to leave service as soon as it's done because I've got to get somewhere right afterwards. So I'm kind of like urgent and already thinking of my exit strategy and plotting what I was going to do, like already knew my next steps. And as I'm thinking through what I'm going to do, I'm not really focused on what's happening in the room. I'm just already preoccupied with what I'm going to do next. And as that's happening, all of a sudden, something unexpected happens, and Joel pops up on stage and says, actually... 
Before we close, we have one more baptism. And so I'm like, oh, it like kind of threw my plans off because I already was like, knew my next steps of where I was headed. And so I just quickly forget what I'm doing and I sit down really quick and totally forgot that I had my coffee cup and on my chair, and as I sat down, I didn't just tip it over. I crushed the thing, and it was full of coffee, and so it like just gushed out. Montana just jumps to the side, Jaron goes to get some paper towels, and then I like jump back up. People behind us, they like put their feet up in the air like because they almost got, you know, ambushed by a coffee, and then somebody comes with a mop and starts mopping it, and what I didn't realize also was I was sitting right in front of the uh, live stream, and so somewhere out there, there's like this video of me like sitting down and springing back up, and the reason why I forgot it is because something unexpected happened. And what I realized is that sometimes when something unexpected happens, that is when we're most vulnerable and most susceptible to forgetting. And that's why through the whole Old Testament, there is this thematic motif, there's this word that appears over and over and over again in the Old Testament, and it's the word remember. It's the word zakar, because as soon as they get out of Egypt, and they're out of slavery, and they're about to head into the promised land, God says, when you settle, and when you're in a place where you're prospering, don't forget that you were once slaves. Don't forget the hard times that I delivered you from. And sometimes, like our Memories, some of them are good, some are more hard and traumatic, but God is saying, like, do not remember those things, because even in remembering the hard stuff, that's where healing comes. And I just feel like over and over again, one of the main things that we're in danger of is forgetting what God has done in our lives. And so there are some different ways that I want to just suggest to remember. One of them, I asked the staff this week, like, how do you help remember? And uh, Tina, who's on the women's um, ministry, she actually said that one of her favorite ways is journaling. And I think that journaling is just a great way to add. Like the last couple weeks, we talked about, you know, reading scripture and praying. What about reading scripture and praying while you journal it? Like, put it down on writing so you remember, what are the things I prayed? What are the answered prayers that I've had? Matt Kenny also leads a group called um, Retelling in the Fall, where they basically work through their story. And then the other thing I'd say is physical place, like actually going to visit things that help you remember. Uh, about a year ago, two weeks ago, was when um, a mentor who invested in me for like 15 plus years uh, passed away. And it was at a camp in Rockford that um, I got to know him. And so I went up there and just spent a whole day just trying to remind myself of what is it that he did that impacted me and how can I live that out and embody that? And lastly, I'd say somebody mentioned sharing in community. This can look like sharing with your friends and sometimes it could be like sharing what God has done. It can also be sharing the hard things, the real and the raw things of what God is leading you through and what you're working through. I would say like a good practice would be is if you're in a small group or in a house church or doing a, a family meal to share what is like one thing over the past year that you have seen God do in your life? What is one challenge that he's brought you through as well? And to share in community because when the hard times come is when we need other people to remind us of what God has done. And so if there is a place where you're feeling like um, you're going through suffering, remember that God promised that he would never leave you nor forsake you.
when maybe the work you've done for years is going unrecognized and you're not getting the credit uh, that you deserve at work, remember that you have a God who says he sees in secret. Remember the things that God has done. If you're having trouble with forgiveness, remembering that Christ first forgave you. So we also must forgive others. If maybe there's like a challenge or tension in your marriage or in your family, if it's with marriage, remembering your vows. If it's a place where you've been at where you've just felt alone or hurt or betrayed, remembering that there is a God who passionately loves you. And the proof of his love is that he's come for you and for me. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, it says, took bread, gave it to his disciples, and he said, do this in remembrance of me.